Thankful to be here with you this morning and glad to see the congregation assembled. Uh, what a blessing and a privilege it is that we have to, to meet together, to look to God's Word and to worship Him together. In John's record of the trial of Jesus in John chapter 18, Jesus is largely silent as false accusers and witnesses are brought before him and false accusations are made against him. And finally, before the the final judgment is rendered, we read in verse 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And of course after that the judgment was rendered and Christ was sentenced to death. Not for any deeds that he had done, not for any crimes that he had committed, but for being a speaker of truth. For coming into the world to declare with no equivocation what truth is. And the answer of the authority in his day was to ask a question, what is truth? And for each of you here today who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, you have declared that you believe that truth is something real. The truth is something definite. You have believed the truth. John writes in his first epistle and he says that there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, a lot of enemies in the world. In fact, the whole world lies in wickedness, but we know truth. So Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And The question ought to be one we consider every day. What is truth? And in the world today, that's a very confused topic. What is truth? We live in a world where people are more educated than they have ever been in the history of the world, have more access to bases of knowledge, more access to textbooks, more access to scientific knowledge. And yet the world today is overwhelmed by a people who have no idea what is truth truth. People who don't know the difference between man and woman. People who don't know the difference between fact and fiction. People who have no idea what is true. So how can we live in such a world and how can we know the answer to that simple question, what is truth? Well, Jesus told Pilate, I am come into the world to bear witness of the truth. And he says, those who are of truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. What is true? Well, the word of Christ is true. The word of God is true. Well, what is the word of God? 
You know, there are a lot of religions established in the world who profess to speak the words of a deity, the words of God, or to declare what is truth based on some revelation, direct or otherwise, or, or some understanding, some enlightenment. You know, Buddha never professed to have total truth or to know what truth was, but what he learned after a lifetime of suffering and meditation and, and consideration was, he said he gained an understanding, a higher knowledge, a higher consciousness, and what did it tell him? Well, it told him life is essentially meaningless. It essentially told him you can't understand what is true. You can just live and deal with the world as it faces you. But Jesus said, I've come to bear witness of the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice, the voice of the Son of God. And the Word of God. Jesus Christ himself is referred to as the Word of God. In fact, John begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And everything made was made by the Word of God, Jesus Christ. But the Word of God is also an, an appellation, a name that is given to the Holy Scriptures. The scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament. In our articles of faith at this church, we state that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the only rule of faith and practice. That they're authoritative, they're foundational, they can be depended on. They are the word of God. And in our Articles of Faith, we endorse and address the version that we believe most accurately represents the Word of God. Well, why do we do that? Because the Word of God is presented in Scripture as inspired by God. The inspired Word of God, God breathed His Word. And it was transmitted through human beings, authors appointed by God. We find in uh, Peter's epistle... That he writes that in First Peter, or Second Peter, rather, chapter one, verse twenty, he writes that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit. That is, it's not men who wrote their ideas, who wrote these ideas and conveyed them to us. No, he says it wasn't men, but it was God, and that's why the Scriptures carry so much weight, so much authority as we consider them. Turning over there to, to Second Peter. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. That is not based on just what we think it means or we want it to mean. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As we consider what the Word of God is, we, we are forced to acknowledge it is the Scripture, it's presented to us, and it's authoritative. Why? Because it's not just a collection of wise sayings. It's, it's not just a mythology that's been pinned down by multiple authors. What Peter forces us to consider is that the Scripture is not a private interpretation that is not to be interpreted in isolation, not to be considered just based as on our reasoning as human thought, but rather, it's a solid work of one author, a divine author. God wrote the scriptures, speaking through holy men of old. And then, of course, the New Testament scripture is later considered in Peter's epistle. The scriptures were spoken by God. Men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The scripture is one Writing, one book, one word, the word of God. 
It's also important we recognize this language, the word of God, because it is exactly that, God's words that he spoke. The scripture is not a group of thoughts that God conveyed, it's words. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the scripture. What does that mean? It means these prophets, these men of God, they didn't just write a bunch of their thoughts and interspersed in their thoughts were some good ideas or some truths that God gave them. You know, when I speak the word of God, when I preach the gospel, the desire, the hope, the prayer is that the Holy Spirit would lead me in what I say. But I am speaking, and when I speak the word of God out of his word, when the Bible is read, you can rest assured that is God's word being spoken to you. But the rest of what I say, this is my understanding, my interpretation, my uh, delivery of that word. There's a difference in the two. Well, the men writing the Holy Scriptures, they weren't like me preaching the gospel. They weren't writing what they thought about what God had communicated to them. They were delivering God's exact words. What does that mean for us? It means we can trust what they wrote. One of the greatest assaults that Satan has launched against Christianity today is eroding confidence in the Word of God. Making Christians think, well, we only believe some of what's written in the Bible. Because after all, God didn't really say all of this. I've talked to Christians who say, well, I believe the words that are written in red because those were Jesus' words. My question is, how do you know? If you don't believe the black writing, how can you trust that the red writing is true? And, God, and Satan has worked to erode our confidence in the Scriptures in exactly that manner. There are many who say, well, we believe some of the Gospels are true, but some of them are words that were made up by men or were misinterpreted or mistranslated. Further, the idea has been promoted that the purpose of Scripture is to be easily understood. And to that end, there are Bible translations out there that don't even profess to be translations. They're paraphrases or thought-for-thought thought presentations of the Scripture. And people embrace this and say, well, it's easier to understand, it's easier to read. You know, the funny thing is it's not easier. It's not easier to understand. It's just different. Whoever said God's Word was supposed to be easy to understand? We don't do things just because we're they're easy. We do things because they're right. Because they're commanded. Because they're compelled by the Word of God. The reality is that God's Word is not easy to understand. But God's Word is truth. And it's for truth that Jesus Christ came into the world. And it's for truth that Jesus Christ died. Peter closes out his second epistle this way. He speaks of the suffering of the Lord, the suffering that we endure uh, for His sake. And he says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Peter says, here if you missed it, Paul's epistles are Scripture. And those who are unlearned, those who are seeking the easy way, those who haven't dedicated themselves to study, they rest these Scriptures to their own destruction. The Word of God is serious. It matters how we address it, how we deal with it. 
So the question was, what is truth? How can we know truth? How can we learn truth? The Lord Jesus spoke much of the scriptures, the importance of the scriptures. In John chapter 5, he addressing the the life that is in Christ Jesus, the life that is found through his life-giving voice, he then speaks of the scriptures in a very positive light, but a very confusing light to those whom he's speaking to. You see, Jesus was addressing largely the Pharisees who were committed to studying the word of God, but in studying it, they were applying it to their own desires, their own passions, interpreting it out of context and outside of the, the meaning that God had given it. So Jesus Christ came as a fulfillment of prophecy. He came into a world as Scripture said He would. You remember the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15. Says what? Jesus came into the world according to the Scriptures. He suffered according to the Scriptures. He died according to the Scriptures. Jesus didn't come as a surprise to any who was understanding the Word of God. And yet here these students of Scripture are confused about His coming. They're rejecting His words. So in the fifth chapter of John's gospel, verse 39, Jesus says to them, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. What does he say? He says, Search the scriptures. Study the scriptures if you don't understand what I am saying and who I am. Search the scriptures. In the scriptures you think you have eternal life. And you know the funny thing is, in the scriptures they would find eternal life. Because Jesus says, they are they which testify of me. Here you are seeking life and not finding it. Why? Because you're not seeing me. But I'm there in the scripture. Jesus ties here the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Testament to his testament. He is truth. He's come to reveal truth. And those who are of truth receive his words. But here's a people not receiving him. What does he say? Search the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures are solid. They're trustworthy. They're believable. In Matthew chapter 21 and 22, Jesus speaks to a similar group of people, the same people, and what does he tell them? He says, you err because you don't know the scriptures. Matthew 21 Matthew 21, verse 42. Having delivered some eye-opening messages in parable form, Jesus says to them, Did ye never read the Scriptures? They are they which testify of me, remember? Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The next chapter, 22, verse 29. Jesus said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Jesus says you've erred because you don't know the Scriptures. How do you not know the Scriptures when you've spent your life reading the Scriptures? Because you haven't seen or acknowledged the God of the Scripture, the one authoring it, the one who is who is uh, orchestrating, weaving this great tapestry uh, throughout history and revealing himself in covenant over and over again. 
In Matthew 26, as Jesus is in the garden praying and He finishes His prayer and He comes and gathers gathers together His apostles. The Sanhedrin guard approaches along with Judas and Judas betrays the Savior. Well, in the midst of all of these events, Jesus says to the multitudes, verse 30 or 55, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. That's kind of one half of the story. Here, all of the disciples are gathered together. The enemy comes in like a flood. Jesus says, why are you come out as a multitude against me with swords and staves? Why are you coming out like I'm a thief, like I'm a criminal? I've done nothing wrong. And then he answers the question. You've come out like this against me because the Scripture said that you would do so. you are come out to fulfill the Scripture. Well, that should inspire confidence, right? God's word is true. God said it and now it's happening. Later, the disciples, these same disciples would gather together and they would pray to God in Acts chapter 4 and what would they say? They'd say the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers gathered together to do whatsoever thy counsel determined before to be done. Then they understand, God, your word was fulfilled. This is the word you spoke in prophecy. But in this moment, when Jesus says all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, the disciples, hearing that, forsook him. They fled. They left. Why? Because they felt that the Savior was giving up. And they didn't know what was going to happen, but they didn't want it to happen to them. Again, that's chapter 1. A couple of days later, four days later, two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus, a nearby village. Someone meets them in the way and begins to speak with them. They don't recognize him. He asks, why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Wrong verse, sorry. I'm looking for the road to Emmaus and I found the wrong one. There we go, earlier in the chapter. Jesus speaks to him. He meets him on the road there. And they answer his question. He says, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? Verse 17. And one of them, whose name was Cleophas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher, And when they found not his body, they came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels which said he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw him not. Two disciples approached by men they don't recognize. Why are you troubled? Well, we had trusted, we had trusted 
that this had been the Christ. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Where's our trust? They trusted. They trusted in the person of Jesus Christ, but they didn't trust the word of God. And they were discouraged. They were filled with doubt. Satan loves to instill doubt in the minds of the Lord's people. These people were trusting in the person of Jesus, which is a good thing. But they weren't hearing his words. And they weren't trusting the scripture. So how does Jesus respond? Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Why do we read all of that? They were doubting their experience. And they were doubting the person in whom they had trusted of Jesus. But they hadn't heard the words Jesus spoke. Remember in Matthew 16, Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I give you the keys of the kingdom. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to suffer many things of the rulers and the leaders there. I'm going to die. And Peter said, be it far from thee, Lord. Be it not so to thee. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Jesus himself said, this is what is going to happen. And Jesus explains to them here that Moses and all of the prophets said that Jesus would come, said that he would live, said he would suffer, said he would die. This is all according to the scripture. And then he revealed himself to them. And they were made to trust, not just in him, but in the word of God. Jesus always elevates, always exalts his word. In fact, in the Psalms, we read that his word is exalted above his name. The word of God is something upon which we can depend. We remember in Acts chapter 17, we find the record of the Apostle Paul as he goes and preaches the gospel and the church is established in the city of Thessalonica and he ministers there for some weeks and then leaves under under heavy persecution. He arrives in the village, the city of Berea, and there he preaches the gospel. And the testimony of the scripture is that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The ones at Berea were more noble than this church that had been established in a nearby city. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness of mind. And then they searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. We all acknowledge that the word of God is given in the form of the preached gospel. The preaching of the gospel is an essential matter of Christian life. 
We're told, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? Because the church is an instrument of God in our sanctification and because the gospel is a necessary part of the Christian life and experience. The gospel is important. But here we're told these Christians were more noble than some certain others. Why? Because they received the word preached, but they searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. The scripture is a priceless gift, a gift of God to aid in our sanctification, our drawing near to Christ, our conformance to the image of Christ. Jesus Christ, we want to be like him. What did he do? He used the scripture. He lived the scripture. Jesus Christ at 12 years old came to Jerusalem with his parents and what did he do? He went to the, to the temple there. He met with the scholars, the scribes, the philosophers, the doctors of the law and he instructed them in the scriptures. Jesus, on entering into his ministry, was baptized by John the Baptist. Immediately he went off to the wilderness alone. And there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was assaulted by Satan who came to tempt him. And how did Jesus meet that temptation? Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. How did he meet the enemy when the enemy came against him? He met him with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. He met them with the word of God. Throughout the New Testament scripture, Jesus preaches his own gospel, but how does he preach it? He preaches it by quoting the scriptures. It is written. Did not Isaiah the prophet say, you have heard that it hath been said, Jesus was conversant in the scripture. Why? Because he came to make known the truth. And the question, what is truth? God's word is truth. And what does the scripture do? It testifies of Jesus Christ. Search the scriptures and then you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And the New Testament scripture it gives insight. It speaks to us where we live. It speaks to our lives. But what does it speak? It speaks God's word, which is not always easy to hear. Because God speaks very plainly. He speaks with great truth. The word of God is consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. So how do we study the word? We're 30 minutes in. Uh, and finally get to the message. How do we approach the Word of God? How do we study the Word of God? There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of poor guidance out there about what it is to study the Word of God. God's Word is not a series of proverbs to be considered in isolation. It's not just a series of verses. We don't approach the Word of God by reading a passage and deciding what that means to us or what's important about it. We don't do it the way memes show up on Facebook. Have you ever noticed on social media, if you're on social media, how a verse will just show up, somebody posts it, that's their thought for the day? That's a good thing sometimes. It makes us think about the Scripture. It makes us read the Scripture. 
But how many times do we see verses that are completely out of context? Or worse than that, the Bible is posted, a scripture is posted, and then the comment stream seems to directly contradict what God's word says there. No, that's not the way we approach the word of God. We don't open the book and read a verse, and that's our verse for the day, and move forward. The word of God is written in a very specific context. Again, the understanding that it's written by one author... Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That means God was writing the book. There's a reason he put one book before another. There's a reason he gave a bit of message here and another bit over here and they tie together. The same way a man would author a book. Only unlike men, God didn't have to revise it. He didn't have to adjust it. He didn't have to change it. There's a great book, I need to get my hands on it, I saw it a number of years ago, but it's a commentary on the uh, structure of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Why is that so intriguing to me? Well, Calvin wrote the Institutes in the 1530s. He revised it four times in his lifetime, moving chapters and paragraphs from one position to another, trying to get it right, the order in which he presented things. It's a fascinating study to me. There's no need for that in God's word. God didn't make mistakes. He didn't have to reevaluate how he wrote it. As we look at it, we may read a book and we may say, this prophet didn't have the whole picture. He didn't know what he was writing about. But we understand. How? Well, we have the benefit also of the New Testament that provides understanding. You see, Jesus took the writings of multiple prophets, crammed them together, and quoted them together, showing us how they fit together. The Bible provides its own commentary on itself. One of my favorite reference books is a commentary on the New Testament use of Old Testament Scripture, analyzing how Christ did that in the New Testament, putting Old Testament Scripture together. Context Context, context. Every verse of Scripture is presented in a context. Context exists in multiple forms. The first is, where is it in the Bible? How is it situated between verses on either side of it? Beyond that, what chapter is it in? What else does the chapter say? What is the literary context in which you find it? But context also exists in this form. When was it written? What was the situation of the people to whom it was written first? Were they in captivity? Were they a sovereign nation? Were they, were they a people scattered? Who was the author? Was the author a prophet? Was the author a king? Was the, was the author a judge or a ruler? Was the author a poor fisherman who had been with Christ? Who authored it? Who did he write it to? Where is it situated? And what is the argument or the story being presented? Context is important to consider whatever we're reading, wherever we approach the scripture. Who's doing the speaking? What is the message? You see, because the Bible is God's book and it's God's expression of truth, the Bible makes sense. So if we're reading it and it seems not to make sense, We're reading something wrong. We're not understanding it properly. We need to expand our our view. Context matters. It's important. Also within the word of God, there are some words that aren't meant to be understood literally. 
the obvious one that springs to mind is much of the material found in the book of Revelation. It's not literal. But by and large, the Bible is a very literal book. We don't need to reach to try to make things symbolic that are very literal. We don't need to take the account in Genesis when God says the world was created in six days and everything in it and try to turn those days into eons. What is a day? A day is a day. It says in the context. It says the evening and the morning were the first day. We don't need to take what's literal and make it symbolic to avoid the implications it may have or the struggles we may face in defending it. If the literal sense of a text makes sense, we should not seek another sense in which to read it or we will lose the truth that is presented in God's word. God's word is true. We must believe it and receive it as true. There is no conflict in the word of God. Very often on first examination, it may seem that one text contradicts another text. A rule of biblical interpretation and Bible study is that if two texts appear to be in conflict one with the other, at least one of them is being misunderstood. Maybe both are being misunderstood. God's word is true, but my mind isn't always tracking the way it should. The default as a student of the scripture when you don't understand something should not be to believe God's word is faulty. This applies with individual conflicting texts. It applies with regard to the, the textual family and the translation that one's looking at. The answer is not get a different translation. The answer is understand the Word of God. Now, I say that to those who use the King James Version, which I believe is the best. I say that to those who use other translations. If something you're reading seems to conflict itself, assume the problem is in your understanding, not with the translation that you're reading. Since I brought that up, I'll address translations. The... Authentic, inspired word of God is the original autograph that was written by the hand of the author. Not one of those is existent in the world. Not for any text of the scripture. God, according to his faithful word, has preserved his word. And will preserve it till the end of time. And that preservation is in itself a marvelous study. Because we don't have any texts that we can idolize or worship or hold up and say, this is what Isaiah wrote. What we have is a collection of fragmentary, fragmentary manuscripts that were adored, that were handled with care by scribes over centuries and generations. And gathered together at various times and presented as the text of Scripture in its original languages. And those were carefully considered and carefully examined and carefully translated over the course of generations. 
and translated into almost every language in the world. And in the English language, through a series of four translations from the 1520s through 1611, there was an English Bible that was presented that God gave to His people. The Geneva Bible, the KJV, that for three centuries were used by the English-speaking world exclusively. Since that time, there have been efforts to provide more accurate translations. There have been efforts to provide newer translations. There have been efforts to provide easier-to-be-understood translations. Much has been made to, to fight the battle of which translation ought we to use. The problem with the translations is not that they are hard to understand. The problem is that many have not tried to understand. I think, for me, one of the greatest recommendations of the version we call the authorized or King James Version is that every other version is defined or described by its translators as, in some way or other, almost as good as the King James. I'll leave that there. If you use another translation, it's still God's Word. An argument over inferiority or superiority is for another time. If two texts appear to be in conflict, at least one of them is being misunderstood. Probably both. Number four, never make explicit that which in the Scripture is at best implicit. That might not seem like a rule of interpretation or translation, but it is. God's Word presents many ideas that at very best are implied in the meaning. Sometimes God makes a statement that's a definite statement that applies to one condition. And maybe it seems to us like it's implied that the opposite must also follow as an axiom. But it's not stated that way in Scripture. We don't need to focus on or emphasize that which seems to be implied when what God said was something that was very clearly stated. Uh, an example uh, of this problem or this consideration can be found in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes, And he says, and I'm not able to find my text here. <laughs> here, I was going to give you an example, and I can't find my example. I hate it when that happens. Uh, Uh, 
I guess I'll move on. I can't find a text that I know is on the page in front of me. That which is explicit. The Word of God states things about children of God. It says that those who believe are the sons of God. It says that the Word of God, the Gospel, calls and influences and affects the lives of every one of His to whom it is sent. We can take those things and we can see them as they're presented, as encouragement, as evidence, as testimony to the work of God in the lives of His children. And certainly there's an implication that those who do not believe are none of His. There's an implication that those who are not affected are not being affected because they are not His. And in some cases, the Scripture says that. But we need to be careful not to emphasize and focus on the opposite of what the text says. Instead, let's read the Word for what it is and consider the meaning in the language as it's presented. Number five. We need to recognize the limits of human understanding. Recognize that we can't understand it all. If we could, then we would be like the author. We would have the mind of God, fully understanding all things. The Word of God is given to us to study, to meditate on, to continue to feed off of for our life long. And that's okay. John Calvin, in his institutes, wrote a, a wonderful expression on this subject. He talked about not going beyond the limits of our understanding or beyond what the Scripture says in trying to understand the things of God. And so many errors in theology and in, 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 in church philosophy and ideas have come because we want to understand how God's mind works. And God only tells us so much in His Word. And instead of reading His Word and learning everything there is to learn there, we try to go beyond that. And we go beyond those limits and we find ourselves in error. Because we find ourselves denying truth that is revealed in search of understanding that which is not revealed. The Scripture says wisely in the Deuteronomy writing, the secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and our children forever. And that's the Word of God that we're given. Finally, we need to be careful that when we approach the Word of God, we check our preconceived ideas at the door. That is, I don't approach the Word of God with a systematic theology that's part of my Baptist upbringing. I don't approach the Word of God with a framework in my mind that says this is what the Bible has to say. Instead, I approach it as a student at the feet of the Savior. And I listen to hear what He is saying. Systematic theologies are valuable. They're important. They serve a role. 
The role of a systematic theology is to provide a framework or frame of reference in which different doctrines and ideas fit together as we try to understand the body of truth that's revealed. But there's a flaw in every system. No system comprehends all truth. And if we allow the scripture to be interpreted through the lens of some man-made structure, then we're not allowing the scripture to be the authority. We're allowing that system to be the authority, that framework to be the authority. The scripture is given as a lens through which we can interpret truth. We can understand what we see in the world around us, and we can understand the greater framework of our theology. Because scripture is truth. And as the scripture says, all men are liars. There is no system of religion that isn't tainted by the personalities of the men who constructed it. And that's true of the New Testament church in its physical structure. Now, the church was built by Jesus Christ. It was built to last forever. And it will last forever. And it's ruled by Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. But the scripture is honest and transparent. It shows us New Testament churches at work in the first century. And it shows us personalities and divisions and problems. In fact, we're told that it must be that divisions, that heresies come among you. Why? That the truth may be revealed. And of course, the Apostle John writes his third epistle so bluntly, so coldly, so plainly, inspired by God. And he calls out the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Diotrephes, a man who desires to have the preeminence, a man who there's no indication of Scripture is even a child of the king, yet he's a ruler in the New Testament church. What does all of this tell us? It tells us that we've been given a great gift, that we have the Word of God that we can trust, that we can depend on. And we should invest our time, our effort, our energy in understanding that Word. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word of God is profitable for everything. Look at that. He says you've known the scripture from a child. But be diligent to continue studying the scripture. Continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of. Knowing what of whom thou hast learned them. Know that you've learned them from God. That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. What do the scriptures do? They make you wise unto salvation. What does that mean? Well... 
How can you even know what salvation is apart from the Scripture? You know, the Apostle Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 7, and he says that the law is fulfilled in Christ. We're no longer ruled by the law. But is the law valuable? Absolutely. Why? Because he says if it wasn't for the law, then I wouldn't even know my sin. I wouldn't know how guilty I am. The Word of God shows us our guilt, which causes us to, to seek and desire salvation. And then it shows us salvation is in Christ alone. Christ is set forth as the mediator, as the propitiation, as the sacrifice, as the Lord and the ruler in our lives. He is set forth as truth. The scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. How can we have faith with no object? The scriptures give us an object for our faith. We are to believe in Jesus Christ. And belief in Christ is evidence of salvation. There's no salvation through any other. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. All Scripture, every word of Scripture, beginning to end, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, teaching, the elements of what we believe. The Scripture is profitable for teaching us what truth is. It's profitable for reproof. Reading the scriptures is a convicting experience. Because when I read God's word, I see myself. And I see my sin. When I read about Old Testament saints and I read about their failings, I see in them myself and my failings. When I read about New Testament churches that have lost their way, I see my own self and my own church. And I see that we lose our way time and again. The scripture is profitable for reproof. To set us right. To correct our error. To put us on a right path. For correction. Again, reproof makes known the error. And correction sets us aright. If we as a church are losing our way, what do we do? We look to the Word of God and we find that reproof, that error that is existing in us. And then the Scripture provides a course correction where we should go. This is true personally, it's true in families, it's true as individuals. The Word of God reproves, the Word of God corrects. For instruction in righteousness. The Word of God is the direction for where we ought to go. Churches and individuals love to make lists of rules to live by. The church at Galatia established a law. If you're going to be a member of the church, here's how you need to live. And if you live this way, God's blessings will be upon you. And Paul writes and says, you've fallen from grace. You've lost sight of the liberty that is yours in Christ Jesus, a liberty that doesn't bind you, but rather frees you to serve God in accordance with the truth that has been revealed. The Scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. We don't need anything else. What we need is God's Word 
and its application by his spirit in our lives. That the man of God may be perfect. Perfect is a little bit different from holy. The word perfect means complete, fulfilled, all that he is supposed to be. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We said the scripture and the study of the scripture is an instrument in sanctification. We understand this because of this verse among others. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What is the work of sanctification in the life of a child of God? It's God working in us, in them, making them a worker of good works. It's God that works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God who has saved us. It's God who has called us. And it's God who has ordained that we should walk in good works. And the scripture is a thorough furnisher unto every good work. As we've looked at this doctrine of sanctification over the past several months, we've looked at how sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit first to last. Sanctification employs instruments in the lives of God's children. The work of God in sanctification is done through relationship in the New Testament church. The church is an instrument of sanctification. The gospel is the beginning of that work as God takes one born of the Spirit of God and conforms them through the influence of His Word. The gospel is a powerful instrument in this work of sanctification. The Holy Scripture is important. It's not enough that we simply sit back and hear the word preached. Like the Bereans, we should receive the word with readiness of mind. We should seek the Spirit's application of the word to our heart. But we should then dig in to the Scripture. We should feed on the Scripture. We should recognize the Scripture is to be desired more than food, more than drink more than the air that we breathe. We should live on the Word of God. And that's the example Jesus set. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Word is a part of that. There are a lot of related topics, related subjects. We've touched on some of them this morning. Which Word are we reading? Can we trust the Word of God, that it is faithful? The answer is, if God is faithful, we can trust His Word. If we break down that confidence, if we destroy our trust in the Scripture, then we cannot know what truth is. And with Pilate, we'll say to Jesus, what is truth? We live in a world that asks the question, what is truth? As though it cannot be known, it cannot be ascertained. But the Christian responds, responds with the Apostle John and says, we know that we are of God. We know 
that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. How can we know truth? Because it's given us in the Scripture. Now, we all struggle from time to time. And if you're struggling in your own life, you're struggling with decisions, you're struggling with a lack of hope or of confidence, you're downcast and you're discouraged, and things just seem to be going against you. Maybe you open the Word of God and it just seems like Romans 8 did to me a minute ago, like a blank page. You just can't find what you're looking for. You read the Word of God and it just seems like God isn't there. You're tempted to give up. In a world full of disappointments, in a world full of uncertainty, in a world where you can't trust anyone, no matter how you feel, remember when you first believed and trust God's Word. Go to it in prayer. Pray to God for understanding. Pray to God to speak to you and look to His Word. Approach His Word in accordance with the rules we've outlined. Look for the context. Look for a message. And you will find the Word of God to be a thorough furnisher to every good work. Now, if you're going to the Word of God looking to justify a decision you've already made, or if you're going to God's Word looking to tell you you're okay when you're in sin, if you're looking to God's Word to tell you it's alright to do your own thing, you're not going to find that in God's Word. Because God's Word is true. And sometimes the truth hurts. But the truth will transform our lives The truth will force us to see ourselves as we are. But more than that, it will show us God as He is. It will bring us to a place of worship. It will bring us to a place of recognition. It will bring us to the feet of Jesus Christ where we will be what He's called us to be. We'll be Christians in an unchristian and ungodly world. Thank you for your time and your attention this morning. I pray the Lord's blessing. Uh, if anyone does have any any questions specifically about the the topics related that I haven't addressed specifically, don't hesitate to to talk to me about them. Uh, thank you for your time.